Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Ashton Kingdon. Ashton is a PhD candidate whose area of research is far-right extremism, radicalization, alt-tech, and artificial intelligence. And she's a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Thanks for joining us, Ashton. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. I guess just to start off with, could you? what is your research? What do you research? <laughs> Well, this is a question that I get asked a lot and people are like, what? (laughs) So my PhD is actually in web science, which a lot of people haven't heard of. So the Web Science Institute was set up to create these like hybrid researchers. So back in the day when Tim Berners-Lee invented the web, everyone that had things to do with it were kind of on the technical side. And we had loads of computer scientists that understood how the web worked from a technical stance but not so much how users of the web are interacting with that technology. So the Web Science Institute was set up 10 years ago to train us to be hybrid. So my research is interdisciplinary in that it's criminology, history and computer science. And I look at a few key things, the subcultural elements of radicalisation in far-right extremism. So that would be different subcultures online. So it might be QAnon, it might be eco-fascist communities, fascist forums, things like that. And I look at the way that technology accelerates radicalization and recruitment and the weaponization of history in contemporary narratives. And how do you go from looking at you know web science to getting into looking at the radical right? I did a master's before my PhD in criminology and that was looking, I spent eight months in Islamic state networks and I was really interested about this whole, what we would call in criminology, a moral panic about Western youths using social media and then being attracted to the caliphate and I, I was really interested in how much technology was actually playing a part in this process. So I did that research. And then when I actually signed up for my PhD, my research was going to be in into Islamic State. And I had to do another master's. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll look at the far right as like a, a gap to get some more knowledge on extremism and then go back to sort of radical jihad. But I actually fell in love with the topic. And then that's how I ended up staying in that area. Sorry, you fell in love with the topic? Yeah, I just find it, I find it really interesting and extremely timely and relevant. And when I was doing my second master's, it was around the time that the alt-right was really rising in America. And I thought 
it was such an important topic that needed more investigation. And that's why I kind of swapped ideologies, if you will, (laughs) from my persona as a jihadist to my persona as a far-right extremist. But yeah, um, so I've been doing that for a, a good few years now. Did you find many parallels between the two online cultures? Only really in terms of the way that they use technology, but also some of their propaganda can be similar because that's my main thing that I I only really look at images so memes videos things like that and sometimes you do find similarities and like plagiarized propaganda if you could call it that between ISIS and far-right movements have they no shame no they have no shame plagiarizing like that. That's what one of my professors said to me, actually. He was like, what? Where's the academic integrity? <laughs> but no, you do often see a lot of recycled and plagiarized propaganda. Why is it that images are used uh, so effectively by right-wing extremists? The way that I sort of frame it is a picture speaks a thousand words. And in my research, it's all about the fact that you can look at a picture that might have an image of a Klansman in, for example, or a far-right rune, something to do with the Nazi party, and you automatically know from the image what the message is intended to be. So when I look at memes, I look at them as having this universality. So what is the universal message within memes that any viewer looking at that meme can gain? And then where are the inherent crystallizations? So what's coming from that meme when it's being shared at a particular time or on a particular platform? by a particular group of people. And it's about tracking that through time, through technology, being able to accelerate them. And I think that you can contain really insidious messages within memes, wrap them up under this illusion of humour, say things like it was just a joke. I see this a lot with anti-Semitic memes, Islamophobic memes that are caricatures. So a lot of it is about educating people as to the reasons why these memes aren't funny, why they are incredibly offensive. And it's really about tracing those caricatures from their origins and then through their repackaging in meme culture to try and explain why they're offensive to the general public. We've recently had an example of a former perhaps current celebrity chef in Australia, doing this by sharing an image which incorporated the Sonnenrad, but which positioned it in terms of its evolution from a caterpillar who was bearing a Make America Great Again symbol and then later transforming into this beautiful butterfly badged with the the Sonnenrad. And when he was asked if he knew what he was doing, when he, because many people looking at this and automatically read it as meaning this was a transformation from a, I guess, a right-wing Trump supporter to a, a neo-Nazi of some sort. He denied any knowledge of the meaning of, of that imagery and the, the messages that they convey, which seems to be a fairly common, as you mentioned. Uh, there's a certain degree of plausible or implausible deniability built into some of this imagery. How, how do you go about tackling the question of whether or not people who are sharing this material understand what it is that they're doing? I mean, I would be surprised if somebody really didn't know that that symbol was linked to neo-Nazi groups. I mean, it's a pretty common symbol. When you get memes that are more, 
containing iconography or symbols that have been known to have different meanings. So, for example, the Celtic cross is one, like a clan symbol. That has been known to have super, like, widespread meaning in different cultures. If it's something like that, I could kind of understand that maybe they didn't realise that it had been adopted by a extremist movement. But the Sonnenrad is so out there. I would be surprised if they... Maybe if they, I wouldn't necessarily say that people sharing them have insidious motives, but I would be really surprised if they didn't know that that was linked to the Nazi party. But I think it comes down to people sharing memes and images, maybe not understanding why they're offensive or trying to, you know, cover that up by claiming ignorance, like I didn't know what I was doing. And I think that that is quite dangerous as well. But then that's, why we're trying to help with social media, like flagging this content as extremists. You've also written about particular sites such as Iron March and Fascist Forge and the ways in which they've helped to promote Nazi doctrines. Could you briefly explain what those sites are or were? And also, how does Gab feature in this discourse? During my work, I adopted three identities to go and undercover online as such so one is a radical right populist white nationalist so I was on the platforms gab parlor things like that telegram one as a uh, traditional white supremacist so these are your clan members and your neo-confederates and one was a neo-nazi and then the core part of my neo-nazi identity was in this esoteric hitlerism section of that so the obsession with the occult. But the fascist forums, so you had I'm the ones that I was a part of were Iron March, Fascist Forge and Siege Culture. And I really look at them as sort of incubators of of the far right. Now, the reason that I talk about them so much is because I, I'm really focused on this emerging technologies and how they influence radicalization. And obviously we've seen with social media this huge rise in the alt-right, you know, Islamic State we're using it. But actually what my research shows is that the most openly extreme people and the most like willing to share really extreme fascist national socialist views are operating on the web 1.0 technologies. So these are the your basic platform websites, right? They don't use artificial intelligence. They fly under the radar somewhat of security agencies and police because there's this obsession with looking at the web 2.0 platforms. So actually what I found is that it, there's a lot of very, very extreme people in a really small space. So when you join Fascist Forge, you have to sit an exam. And in order to pass this exam, you have to read certain literature. So for example, Mein Kampf's on there, George Lincoln Rockwell, Siege by James Mason, The Turner Diaries, all the sort of big ones you probably would have heard about. Now, once you've passed this exam, you can go into the community. So say, for example, there's, I think there was like 1,300 people that were members like me. So people that hadn't sat the exam. Now, in the terms of full membership, so people that had done this research, passed these exams, there was 283 people on this forum that I was watching. I was on there for about eight months. And out of these people... 17 of them were openly calling for acts of terrorism. I think it was 38 were calling for 
offline mobilization and there were people on there that were openly identifying themselves as recruiters from neo-Nazi groups such as the Atomorphum Division, Antipedian Resistance, openly saying that they were there to recruit. So the thing that when I would present this research to people, it's not just explaining why these forums are so dangerous. They remain out of the way. They're more niche. They're more hidden. It's about the effort placed on getting into these forums in learning the historical roots of the ideologies that they're talking about. And actually, 95% of the people on this forum have had these views for a long time, right? They are not people that have flip-flopped through the alt-right or the rise of Trump or Brexit. They have had these views for a long time. And the thing that's most scary about it, and when I present it, the thing that shocks everyone is they list their professions and a lot of them are primary school teachers. There was some paramedics on there scientists. There's this big recruitment drive to get people that are interested in eugenics, really intelligent people, ex-military. And that's why I think that they're so dangerous, these platforms. In terms of the links that you've observed between Nazism and the occult and neo-Nazis and the occult, what does that look like in the modern context? So you see it a lot in memes. I, I talk about it as the way that these links with the occult are coming into mainstream platforms. There's a lot of focus at the moment on a platform that's a forum, the Order of Nine Angles. And I've seen a lot of people write about this recently. Now, this is a very satanically focused links to neo-Nazi platform. So what I focus on is the way that these ideas are moving not into specific niche underground areas, but actually mainstream social media platforms. So the way that I've seen it is through memes on 4chan, 8chan, platforms like Reddit, very linked to Hindu eschatology. So this idea that we're in the Kali Yuga, so the fourth stage of the Yuga cycle, the dark age as such. Now, this is linked to someone called Savitri Devi, who believed that Hitler was the person that was going to bring us out of this. So you see her very, very heavily within memes. She's very heavily linked to Hindu nationalism. So I know that Evian's done a a show on that. So you see a lot of memes that sort of represent that. And you see a lot of like identitarian movement memes to do with going back to this sort of idealised past. So... When I look at history in my dissertation, it's all about these alt histories, right? So these alternative versions of history where the far right will cherry pick certain moments and carve a narrative that stands against history itself. And often these are repackaged within memes. So you see a lot of things to do with the Crusades. It might be the Vikings. And it's all about glorifying this past to create this idea of a utopian future. And you see a lot of these memes where they might be endorsing these healthy Zen Buddhist lifestyles linked to people like Julius Evola, um, who is a hardcore Nazi that kind of flies under the radar a bit. But you see these images all over the place. So they come specifically from an identitarian movement 
website that is designed solely for imagery but you see these images everywhere I've seen them on Gab Instagram Facebook so they're traveling and a lot of the memes that I look at so without going into too much detail on the history side if you look at the the rise and the influence of the occult during the Third Reich there's a few key figures that come into play there Madame Blavatsky is one Guido von Liszt Wagner as well, because I always say that the far right are hooked on the classics. So you see a lot of classical music involved, a lot of fash wave propaganda. And the reason that this is so dangerous and what I argue is that they fly under the circum, like this, the restrictions. So they circumvent the restrictions of the platforms because the AI deployed by platforms is, you know, designed to look for certain things. And these images, particularly with like eco-fascist movements, things to do with the Volkish movements, blood and soil, are wrapped up in these memes that are advertising Guido von List, who was heavily influential in the Volkish movement, and not pictures of Hitler, not pictures of the swastika, and they're flying under the radar, so they don't get picked up as being hate speech. But anyone that knows the history knows that if you're looking at a meme of these people, what what the message is. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your Dab Radio. We're currently talking to Ashton Kingdon about AI and the occult. This might be an example of one of those things that flies under the radar. I always see people going on about Hyperboreans. Did you explain that? Oh my God, right. So this is nuts. I did guest lectures on this last Friday and everyone was like, what (laughs) are you talking about? So yeah, Madame Blavatsky, he was a theosophist, that she was basically a clairvoyant, right? So she went on this mission to Tibet and was exposed to this secret history of the occult. Now, during this spiritual meeting with these spiritual beings she was told that every so tens of thousands of years there are races seated on earth right so they are eventually destroyed by a natural cataclysm or their own destructive tendency something like war i imagine if it was this this present time it would be something like nuclear fallout she would imagine so she believed that we go through these natural root races she called them so stages of evolution of the cosmic cycle so you had number one was the polarians number two was the hyperboreans and we'll talk about that after i've listed the others number three was lemurians and basically someone called philip slater wrote in 1864 a paper called the mammals of madagascar and said that he found lemur fossils in madagascar and in india but obviously this was before plate tectonics so his only conspiracy theory was there was this secret hidden continent that sunk beneath the waves that linked everything together and this is where this superhuman race live and there's apparently evidence of this still on easter island off the coast of chile the sculptures there are said to be lemurians then they evolved to the atlanteans which obviously the sunken city and then (laughs) evolved to the Aryans, who are going to be the ones that save us from this stage of darkness right so within each so basically anything that you see to do with the word Aryan Aryan race it all comes from this woman Madame Blavatsky and this occult like (laughs) obsession with this race now the Germans believe that they are descendants of 
these route races. And within each route race, you have four sections, so four sub races or four stages. So you start off in your golden age, you move to silver and then copper and iron. Now, so when you hear people talking about a golden age, going back to a golden age, you're talking about the original people of this route race, the Greeks, the Romans, ancient civilizations. So the Hyperboreans were the second <laughs> route race. Honestly, it's so crazy when I start telling the story. And basically, Hyperborea translates from ancient Greek to north of the wind. It's basically talking about the north, a continent on the North Pole that had this superhuman, like secret, strong, master race of people. And the argument is that some of these people survived the collapse of the root race and eventually became Lemurians, eventually became Atlanteans, eventually became the Aryans, eventually became the SS. So that's where the link is. So when you see the word Hyperborea mentioned now, you hear it a lot in European far right, uh, the European new right circles. So Thierry Bourdais used it in 2019 speech, his victory speech, where he said, you know, we need to protect boreal Europe. Jean-Marie Le Pen has used it in speeches as well. We need to get on with Russia to save boreal Europe and protect the white race. And they use this phrase from Brest to Vladivostok. And it's basically in homage to this idea of Eurasianism that's become quite popularised by Putin's Rasputin, good old Alexander Dugin. He will use this term boreal Europe to endorse this idea of there being a pan-European white ethno state that will encompass Europe and the USSR. So if you see Boreal Europe in meme culture or on mainstream platforms, it essentially is probably just meaning white or Nordic. And the idea comes from this superior super race that eventually became the SS. So yeah, it's all a bit weird. <laughs> I have to confess that when I hear the term Hyperborea, one of the first things I think of is Robert E. Howard and uh, his fiction uh, about Conan and I think even the Lemurians and, and various other uh, peoples uh, populate the universe that he created in the uh, early 20th century. Yeah, it's it's definitely very strange. And, and all of this comes from this clairvoyant and theosophist Madame Blavatsky. So you see her image a lot on the platforms because obviously she is the inspiration for these people. But I, I don't think a lot of social media companies are necessarily looking out for this white middle-class woman coming up on their platform. So, yeah, I think a lot of it goes hidden on that front. Oh, I don't know if I can segue from the occult back to AI, except to say that it is machine learning not just a modern clairvoyance? <laughs> Before we go, could you perhaps explain to us uh, what some of your research on AI involves? Yeah, so actually AI is very important in um, the occult, uh, that is, and to history, like in terms of propelling the narratives. Yeah, so I look at AI as a socio-technical system. So it's not about just thinking about how the algorithm is working, how the algorithm might be drawing people to more and more extreme material or more and more of the same topic. It's about looking at who's making the algorithms in the first place, where are they getting their data? Because in order for you to be exposed to content, the data needs to be there in the first place. So data is the fuel of machine learning. So we need to look at that. And it's about 
getting social media companies to be transparent and accountable for their technologies. And this doesn't mean just revealing that you use deep learning or saying that you have recommendation algorithms and revealing one part of the system as such as the sort of magical solution of, look, I'm being so transparent about my technology. No, no, no. We need to see it all, the whole picture, and there needs to be regulators. So that's that's the things that I mainly talk about. So external companies coming into these social media companies that are using these technologies, having a look at their algorithm, looking at their data, looking at what's going in, what it's spitting back out, and then being open and honest about that process, which they aren't. So <laughs> that's really what my research focuses on AI. Well, Ashton, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we will have a few more questions on the podcast, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeah, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go, is there anywhere that people can read more of your work? If you follow me through the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, there's some good stuff on there. Or if you follow me on Twitter under Ashton Kingdon, I usually post most things. But unfortunately, if anything to do with the occult, you'll have to wait until I publish that um, after my thesis but hopefully it'll be out soon looking forward to it thanks so much for joining us thank you so much for having me it's been so much fun well andy that was very interesting very occult cam and that is all we've got time for so we will catch you next week global intifada is up next see you later ashton you've written about accelerationism Uh and terrific ideas like the great replacement can you explain briefly what accelerationism is and what the great replacement is and what is the connection if any between the two yeah so accelerationism is essentially the idea that we need to accelerate the collapse of society meaning the current systems that we have whether they be political, social, etc. And then from the ashes of this collapse, a fascist state can rise from these ashes and flourish. So you see this a lot recently because of the coronavirus. So the coronavirus really sparked this kind of repackaging of propaganda that I'd been seeing for years on Fascist Forge and Iron March. And using the coronavirus as a way of saying that this is the time for us to really take advantage of this societal unrest. So essentially it comes from like modern interpretations of accelerationism in neo-Nazi movements comes from Siege by James Mason, which was a collection of essays written in the 80s. And his inspiration was really a novel called The Turner Diaries, which has a lot of the things that we would see today in neo-Nazi propaganda the day of the rope, this idea of, you know, a societal collapse. And a lot of this has been repackaged with COVID. But essentially, the key tenant is that we just need to hurry up and collapse the government, uprise if that is what it takes, and then be able to rebuild from the chaos afterwards. Now, the Great Replacement Theory has been popularised by, like, the Christchurch shooter, the Norway shooter as well used it, the El Paso shooter. So there's this connection of people expressing in their manifestos as well. So their sort of far-right pre-attack manifestos often pays homage to this great replacement idea. And it's basically the idea that, you know, Europeans, Americans, (laughs) white people as such, are being systematically replaced by things like racial mixing, immigration, 
the birth rates are declining and they essentially what they call for is this idea of living in white ethno states right so it's not so much that they want to eradicate other races it's more that they want to live in separation from one another so essentially it's like you can live but just not near us if you live away from me it's fine but not not together and they'll say things like you know I really love culture and I love to go on holiday I really love visiting other countries and you know I really enjoy immersing myself in those cultures but we need to preserve these cultures and so we need to separate them and they're really clever in their way of using metapolitics to endorse this so you see this idea of the great replacement quite heavily in like mainstream identitarian movements but the, it becomes really dangerous when it becomes a source of action and you see this a lot actually with eco-fascism because obviously as we have more and more people and the planet becomes more and more populated, there's a really thin line between being concerned about the climate and the and the thought that things are running out and then flipping over into this po- overpopulation, really sinister ideas about, right, so who gets access to those resources and who gets the clean water and who gets this aid and it becomes a very us versus them ranking races and cultures fortifying borders militarizing them and this has been popularized by the great replacement theories intertwining with eco-fascism so for example the Christchurch shooter conducted his attack on the 15th of March which was the first youth climate strike so all over the world youths were leaving their classrooms to talk about the climate crisis and demanding that governments take responsibility for that. And he used this opportunity to be able to express his eco-fascist views. And within this, it is very linked to the Great Replacement. And the Norway massacre as well in his manifesto said heavily about this idea of climate, overpopulation, more migration. They don't want it. And then it becomes very quickly a case of, okay, so if we have less people there'll be less climate change issues. So who do we get rid of? And that's when it becomes really dangerous. One of the things that occurs to me when you refer to relatively obscure figures like uh, Madame Blavatsky and some of the ideas that are associated with uh, esoteric uh, fascism and Nazism is the ways in which those figures and those ideas can be incorporated into more mainstream discourses. Are there, what do you make of that relationship and, and the definition actually of the extreme and the mainstream? And do you think that there are particular moments at which these ideas, which should perhaps properly be considered uh, esoteric and, and outre and uh, foreign in one way or another, the way, are there ways or moments in which those um, processes of, I guess, normalisation can be best disrupted? The idea of the mainstream is completely fluid anyway, and it depends what you mean when you talk about the mainstream or extremism in the mainstream. Are you talking about a platform like Facebook or are you talking about a platform like Twitter? And are they platforming someone like Donald Trump? Is Donald Trump an extremist? Are supporters of Donald Trump an extremist or do you have to be part of the alt-right? It's very tricky when it comes to explaining what extremism is, which is why 
we have such a problem with social media companies because if no one can agree and no one can, you know, compromise on a strategy of how to combat this, not having a universally agreed definition makes it difficult to counter. And there's a lot of people that do fantastic work on, you know, the definitions of extremism and what it means for someone to be extreme and what is the mainstream. And I don't really look at things like that. I I leave that to them and look at the way, look at things like technology, the intersection with these different groups. But I think it's really difficult when you have this propaganda on mainstream platforms because number one it doesn't look like your conventional type what you would deem to be offensive and this is one of the key things that I argue in my research there's almost a kind of argument that what I look at is the most extreme and the most dangerous because I immerse myself in neo-nazi cultures and you know clan cultures things like that who are historical manifestations of the worst kinds of racism and extremism that have been in the mainstream, right? Because segregation was legal, slavery was legal, you know, racial hygiene, so eugenics in Germany was legal. These are all mainstream ideas. So when you look at the role of eugenics, for example, it was quite heavily sort of propelled by Mary Stopes in the UK, Margaret Sanger, in America, this idea of selective breeding, and we can have a better race if we decide who can and can't have children. And this was designed as a social solution to a social problem. And in those days, it was more socially acceptable for them to be eugenicists rather than feminists who are interested in family planning. So it's all about what's in the mainstream. So there's this kind of idea that My research is so extreme and so on the end, whereas I argue that actually my concern is not these, not so much these people in these fringe groups, but the way that they're on the mainstream platforms and the people on the mainstream platforms are kind of being seen as less extreme than them, if that makes sense, just because they're not in in a neo-Nazi group. They're saying the same things. And this is the point of tracking the memes across platforms and this idea of the inherent crystallization. You see the memes that were bred on neo-Nazi forums appearing on Gab, on Confederate Instagram. And they're on mainstream platforms circumventing the restrictions. The same message is seen as less sinister if it's on a mainstream platform. That's certainly what I found anyway in my research. Yeah, it it brings to mind the uh, meme we discussed earlier because that was propagated on uh, Facebook and Instagram by someone who was um, otherwise not recognised as being necessarily a a right-wing extremist. So I suspect that many of the people who received that message would have been able to determine some kind of ideological content. The thing about the Sonnenrad, the reason why it's so widespread is because it actually it isn't included in the German law of being illegal. So in Germany, it's illegal to fly or have any memorabilia of anything to do with the Nazi party. So any of the runes, any of the sing- the symbols... But because the Sonnenrad was on the the floor of Wiesburg Castle, so that's Hitler's like spiritual centre for the SS, it's like six swastikas atop each other. It doesn't actually come under a, 
the category of a symbol that was part of the party. So it's actually not illegal to display that, which is why you see that a lot more because it's not illegal. But although we all know that it's linked to like what the motivation behind it is, it's actually not illegal. And that's, again, one of the issues of of looking at those bigger issues of how we can prevent extremism. One of the reasons I asked about uh, the relationship between the extreme and the mainstream is because just uh, last week, uh, the Australian Senate passed a motion proclaiming, and I'm going to quote, that far left and or far right and far left extremism is often cultivated through its overlap with various conspiracy theories, which have become a common tool to radicalise individuals, especially through misinformation on social media. And I realise that you're looking at um, far right extremist conspiracies. Are you aware of, but I'll ask anyway, are you aware of any far left extremist conspiracies that also enter into this domain? Yeah, so one of the most interesting things actually about Fascist Forge is part of this whole recruitment process on the forum is they explain, they, they list some details about their background, right? So what their ideologies are politically, why they want to join the forum, how they heard about it, etc. And a huge proportion of the people on the platform were far left first. So they would describe themselves as anarchists, as Marxists, communists, socialists in their profiles. And then they would flip right from the left into fascism. And the way that I've seen it is when they start to be like, oh, I really, really don't like capitalism. I don't like it at all. It's really, it's really horrible. We just need things to be fairer. Why is there such a problem with capitalism? And then they start to become, you know, fixated on this whole Jewish conspiracy of there being a global, you know, elite of financiers, you know, and then it becomes very easy for them to slip into the fascist slash national socialist side of things because of this stereotype about Jewish people being in control of the capital, <laughs> which I find I see quite a lot. I haven't spent that much time on conspiracy theories on the left, like in terms of the ones that I mainly look at, but I do do a lot of work on the links between uh, terrorism and climate change, particularly left-wing terrorist organisations. And you do see similar grievances come up in eco-fascist and what we would sort of call left-wing extremist environmentalist groups. So that's quite interesting. Perhaps just finally, back to AI and machine learning, they're often seen as the solution to the problem of Mm -hmm. moderating social media. Uh, Are they? No. I mean, no, and that's, I I just, that argument kills me. It's when it's like, oh, we'll have to have a more technically advanced solution (laughs) to prevent the technically, you know, enhanced problem that we've created. I don't think it's a solution. I think it can help. I do definitely think that there are some benefits to having automated content removal services. Now, it's the ways in which these are deployed and created that I have an issue with, who's checking the content. There's been all of this sort of information about the, you know, the farms of people that <laughs> that brings into questions of modern slavery. They're looking at this content, right, the psychological support for them, who they're targeting, how they're using their AI. 
But I think ultimately it's about making the public aware of the technology and how it works in a in a simple, easy to understand format. And it, to a certain extent, documentaries and things have been tackling this. I think there's one on Netflix called The Great Hack that came out that people were starting to become aware of, you know, what happened with Cambridge Analytica. And my role really in my and what I've been trained for is in my PhD is looking at the socio-technical aspects of technology and, you know, what what the consequences could be. So at the moment, a colleague and I have just written something about the quantum internet and how that might be used by far-right actors and terrorists and extremists and what this new wave of internet will mean for everything else that currently exists, the extremists that are operating on current technologies and how they could manipulate and exploit this new technology. It's about getting regulators and legislators to prepare for that now before they start rolling out the technology in five to 10 years, because it seems as if we're always behind with this. We don't sort of consider it first how the extremists might exploit this technology. And as we've seen with AI, if you're looking at state actors, we'll say, it's been potentially and clearly catastrophic in the past. And I think that that's really important. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashton. Thanks so much for having me.
councils around the country will put on (laughs) disability day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins Mm. and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think, you know, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419. 8377 It's now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter.